The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to the New Books in Indian Religions podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Kristen Hansen on her 2018 Rutledge publication, Women, Religion, and the Body in South Asia, Living with Bengali Balls. Uh, Kristen, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Tell us how this project came about how did you how did you come about studying uh these folks i had first read about them while i was uh, studying comparative religion at the university of oslo but then during um summer holidays i took a job as a um uh, organizing a poetry festival in oslo and there were lots of people artists from india who were invited, and among them were also uh, three singers known as Bells. I didn't really have a chance because I was organizing the festival, so I didn't have much chance to talk to them, but I did hear their songs. And one of the people I met invited me to come to India. And while I was there, I visited a festival and then I, yeah, became interested. Though, uh, Actually, I had first made up my mind to study Bollywood movies. And when I grew a bit tired of watching these movies over and over again, which you would have to do if you were going to make that the topic of your dissertation, I gave up the project and decided to relocate to West Bengal, where I um, met some, um, met one bell who, um, who uh, recommended that I stay in a village. And so I lived with a family there for, yeah, for six months. And then I've been keeping in touch with them through the years since 1987, actually. So it's a longitudinal study, what I've done. So uh, tell us, what's a ball? A ball, as I... As I understand it, and as I argue in my book, is a singer-songwriter tradition, Bengali singer-songwriter tradition. The singers, they play handmade instruments, and they sing what a lot of people call folk songs, but uh, many of the songs also have lyrics addressing their esoteric practices about the body that 
body is considered sacred and uh, its substances that it admits is also considered sacred. The Baals live in West Bengal, but they also live across the border in Bangladesh. So Baals can be Muslim or Hindu, and most Hindu Baals are Vaishnav, which is uh, a, a, a quite a widespread um, religious complex in Bengal. It means you worship Vishnu, but one of Vishnu's avatars and donations is the cow herder Krishna, who is very popular in that area. And, and a lot of poor people worship this god and his uh, uh, milkmaid, Radha. Mm. Now, what is um, what do you consider your data for this project? What are you looking at? How are you gleaning your insights? Um, <clears throat> well, when I set out to study to study them, the questions, these people, they are very poor. And one of the, my naive research questions was, uh, why would anyone who is poor at the outset decide to become a mendicant, a person who lives for alms? And uh, I was... Um, and I was also, of course, interested in uh, their beliefs and practices that I had read an article written by Carol Solomon. And uh, so I, I wanted to find out if these ideas were actually practiced in the everyday, if people, or if they remained ideals, if one should ingest one's body substances in order to become healthy and rejuvenated, which is what um, people believe, the singers believe, and also a lot of, a lot of other practitioners. So um, I decided to live in a neighborhood with a family. That's also what my supervisors told me to do. So um, to get a sense of the everyday living, the lived experience of these people. This most, there has been a lot of research carried out on Bell's beginning with the last start of the last century. But um, a lot of the, the research, although it's very good, is based on multi-sided field work and interviews and conversations. And I was interested in observing their daily interaction, how they lived and what it meant to them, uh, not just in terms of instrumental value that they earn more money singing songs for alms than they would otherwise if they just simply begged, but why, what motivated them, what, what um, what was their experience of it, particularly from a women's point of view? And what did you find out? What I found was what I mentioned, that bells are often portrayed as uh, constituting a special sect. Um, they're very famous in Bengal because, and in Bangladesh because this so-called sect is made up of Muslims and Hindus. So they become a kind of icon, symbol of Bengali unity and um, symbols of Bengali culture. He's also, um, he initially they were looked down upon and the poet and Nobel laureate, Laureate brought them in from the cold and turned them into um, models to be followed in the sense that their lyrics are extremely beautiful and something to be respected. But what I found living in the area was that 
there weren't clear-cut distinctions between Vaishnavas on the one hand and Baals on the other, or a, a bounded sect that could be termed Baals, that they are, um, it's a um, guru-centered complex, and a guru can have Bows as uh, their disciples can consist of bows, but they can also consist of ordinary Muslim householders and Vaishnav householders. In fact, bows are also householders, although they sing for alms. So I try to show that it's much more complex than this, these sort of neat, distinct categories that one is used to working with in, in South Asia, where you make a distinction between householders and renouncers or Hindus and Muslims, Vaishnavs and Shakta worshippers, all these. It's actually much more fluid than that. And there's people, uh, it's, I found that it's more useful to look at the phenomenon in terms of gurus who draw disciples, attract disciples, and that there's a mixture um, the disciples can can consist of all kinds of people, both Muslims, Hindus, Baals, non-Baals, Vaishnavs. And these uh, disciples learn from the guru, but they have to be initiated. So there are different levels of initiation that all these types of people may go through if they want, want to. Tell us a bit about the body in this tradition. Um, the body is, it's, um, it's sacred, of course, and um, they use a lot of terminology also used by tantrics. It's envisioned as a flower garden containing pools of water located in different parts of the body. And these ponds or pools of water are also termed chakras, which we know from tantric religion. Um, the head contains the largest pool of water, and this is where male and female seed is concentrated. And when couples engage in sexual union, they, they bring the seed from the head down to the genital region and by means of breath control, they are able to raise the seed back up into the head. It should not leave the body because substances are considered sacred. So this is a kind of, this type of practice, this is what they learn from the guru, but it's considered sacred, so you should not divulge it to people who have not received a training mantra. You need a training mantra in order to, uh, to learn about these practices. Um, other substances that the body emits are also considered sacred, such as feces and urine, and these uh, should be taken back into the body. And that's would also, you, yeah. Sorry, would you consider this a tantric tradition or would you consider these practices tantric? I would consider them tantric insofar as um, it's, um, they obviously are born out of the same um, climate or milieu, uh, but they themselves would not call themselves tantric because uh, uh, 
tantric dress differently, wear darker shades of saffron. They tend to wear ochre clothes or bright red clothes. Tantrics drink alcohol and eat meat, whereas the people that I study consider themselves Vaishnavs, so they eat fish and milk and should, you know, um, live off a cooling, subsist on a cooling diet, whereas tantrics um, eat heated substances. They also worship Kali and Shiv, whereas Vaishnavs worship Krishna and Raga. So they consider themselves quite distinct, but their practices are very, are, are very much uh, um, come from the same source or and 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 they have obviously they obviously mix meet each other at festivals and exchange knowledge gurus between each other so it's not as if they're you know separated or um yeah yeah the 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 group that you study very much um uh evidence uh, what i think of as a tapestry of hinduism indian religions being a tapestry where Perhaps historically, certainly uh, within textual boundaries, you can um, you can disambiguate, you know, uh, Vedic, Upanishadic, Tantric texts. But in in practice, really, it's it's a tapestry. I mean, you'll see various texts and teachings and practices coming together in lived Indian religions um, in a way that really defies separating out the strands. So it's it's really fascinating. Um, amalgamation of practices you see in, uh, in, in, the, in the group that you study. Um, what do you think most surprised you about this research? Mm, I'm not or sure. struck, stood out, or stood out to you, or what, what did you find most intriguing or interesting or what fascinated you the most about this research? About what you found out? Well, um, what one thing I found fascinating was that um, how closely related the, their ideas about body substances and the body as a sacred entity was actually related to dietary practices. What they were preoccupied with was the food they ate. And they were constantly, because uh, they were singers, um, they believed that when they, when they sang their songs for passengers on trains, they felt that they were that they were conduits for this, that they breathed life into the melodies they were singing, empowering other passengers. And in that process, they, they believed they, um, they lost their energy, that they lost their own vitality, that they lost their balance, their sense of balance. And so they, they would come home and they would, uh, they would look distraught. They were. They could hardly breathe. They would fall down on the ground, and and uh, I would, you know, try to wave a fan and and cool them down and bring them water. And uh, so it was uh, surprising to me that they did not resort to ingesting body substances, but instead would would try to regain their balance through eating things that they thought were heating, like. Um, uh, or or um, uh, yeah, certain vegetables and garlic and onion, things that would, would replenish the power that they lost, the vitality that they lost. So that surprised me. Yeah, I, I thought that body substances were 
that they thought of them as a kind of medication. So if you felt unwell, you would just drink menstrual blood, you would take your urine, but that's not how it worked at all. It was the kind of food they ate. So food was, yeah, overshadowed this. Although their guru would keep telling them to drink their urine to regain their strength, but they countered that because they were singing for passengers, they, they were, became too weak to be able to do that, that in order to live ideally the way the guru said you have to live, you would have to just beg and, and not exert yourself as much as singing involves. Why don't you say a word about the structure of the book? Well, I thought when I wrote it that I would a good way to organize the material would be to... Um, to introduce them and, and show why they chose this way of life. So um, I tell their life stories or they, as they were told to me uh, in various situations and, um, and describe their, the people that they, that they knew, um, their neighbors and other people. So I, I place them in the village surroundings and that, and I continue to do, do that in the second chapter where I focus on caste because these people are belong to the lower classes of society and a lot of them are untouchables as were the, the family that I lived with, they were untouchables belonging to the leatherworking caste. And the stigma attached to that, that's also what I describe that it is, and that uh, the contrast between being untouchable, being viewed as dirty by upper caste um, was something that they, they were extremely ashamed of, but that, they, that being a Vaishnav gave them a sense of self-esteem, that it was, uh, that they were very conscious of that they were purified through becoming Vaishnav. And that the songs they sang were sacred and the, their bodies were sacred. So it was a, uh, um, to me, uh, it seemed that that was part of the reason why they uh, became Vaishnav, not just for instrumental purposes, not just because it was a way of earning money, earning money, though that was important too, but also that this was something that they valued a way of life they valued to become initiated and to see themselves as pure, clean beings. Did that answer your question? Um, then the third chapter, of course, uh, tackles uh, their um, religious ideas and their practices and uh, looks at the contrast between ideals and how they're lived. The fourth ties us into their the begging, singing songs for alms. I also discuss uh, performances. That's what those are known for, of course. That's when they uh, appear in public at festivals and concerts. And the final chapter is uh, is about a burial and uh, a Vaishnava burial where people that I knew were in charge. And that also shows that the boundaries between Vaishnavs 
and vowels, if you can speak about boundaries at all, are extremely fluid. That they are Vaishnav in addition to being vowel. And that the ceremonials, the ceremonies are what, in a sense, identify them, identifies them as religious people, as renouncers, as sadhus, rites of initiation, weddings, and burials. What do you hope people would take away from this book? Um, well, I hope, uh, I hope the book gives people insight into what it's like to, what poor uh, means, what, and uh, also that one gets an idea of how fluid religious practices are, this interaction between householders and, and uh, renouncers and mendicants. Um, that they aren't, I mean, people are, people always describe vows and Vaishnavas as marginalized. And of course, they are very marginalized from a middle class wealthy perspective, but uh, they are not marginalized within their own locality. They are poor, struggling, like other poor, struggling, low caste um, peasants and other types of construction workers and laborers. Hmm. Is this a topic that you will continue to research? Well, um, yes, there's a lot of points that I would like to elaborate on. So I'm, yeah, I'm still producing articles about them. And uh, one article that I'm working on now is about, uh, I elaborate on the begging um, as bows and Vaishnavas as conduits of the sacred power, and I and I uh, 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 talk about tantrics, our Vaishnavas, our bows. Essentially, I would also like to write more about their funerary practices, which is a topic that nobody has addressed before. Vaishnav burial practices. Cutting edge research. <laughs> Is there anything else about the book that you wanted to touch on today? I don't know. Was there anything that impressed you as particular? Well, it, it certainly seemed to me that, uh, obviously, I don't know the, the scholarship of your subfield, but it, this seems to be uh, a remarkably understudied group of people. Um, that could just be my own ignorance because I'm not as familiar with your subfield. Um, so I think it's sort of interesting to have a study on so understudied a group of people. And the second thing that intrigued me the most was the extent to which this group uh, really defies categories uh, along the lines of how we teach intro religion, intro Hinduism. Whereas in 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 the life of practice, really and truly, um, rarely do you see these clean-cut categories uh, of Vaishnava, of Shaiva, of, of tantric practices, of, of, of you know, Vedic practices. And, and this group even pushes that further, it seems to me, where um, you, see, you see bhakti, you see um, uh, tantric. It's so um, textured that it's, it, it really defies categorization along normal, quote-unquote, Hindu sectarian lines. That's really what stuck out to me. Mm. 
Yeah. Well, I'm glad it did. Yes, because that's one of that's the point I tried to to make. That there is an interaction because it's not an actually it's not an understudied group. It's been studying. It's a lot of people have been studying it since for over a hundred years. I think at least a hundred years. And uh, but as I mentioned. Um, a lot of uh, the field work conducted has been multi-sided and also and based on interviews and uh, in that sense you don't get a clear picture of how they fit into their local milieu if you just talk to the bells but you don't talk to their non-bell spouse or their non-bell siblings so what i try to do is is uh, provide a social context for the singers and mendicants, whereas others have provided different types of contacts, such as um, they've looked at a composer's life and uh, shown the composer's trajectory, trajectory and also interviewed people connected to that composer, who disease poser, composer, or they've looked at the performance context, but no, not very many have studied the social context and done that type of field work. So I'm very glad that that point is, um, yeah, that that's what you took away from the book. This is good. Excellent. Excellent. Um, so I suppose we'll close for today. Um, thank you for appearing on the podcast. For those of you listening, we've been speaking with um, Dr. Uh, Kristen Hansen, uh, whose work is available at uh, kristinhansen.com. The website will be in the podcast notes. We've been speaking about her new Rutledge book, Women, Religion, and the Body in South Asia. Uh, until next time, um, um, stay safe, keep reading, keep listening, and keep contemplating uh, the tapestry of Indian religions. Take care. <laughs>